Hello, and welcome to the fifth Petro Nerds podcast. My name is Trisha Curtis, and I will be your host for this podcast and many others to follow. But today we're going to talk about just a lot of things that are happening in the marketplace and some of the rumors um, and things that are going on. So I think the first really being is, is, is what's sort of surrounding um, the issues with OPEC and Saudi Arabia. And over the past couple months, we've been um, in doing a few presentations uh both my, my colleague Ben Montalbano and myself were in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia in mid-February uh, speaking um, at a Thought Leaders Roundtable put on by Capshark as well as the International Energy Forum and it followed in an OPEC meeting as well. And at that, at that roundtable we were discussing, uh, I was presenting on basically shale change, the changes and completions um, in shale and the, the well productivity gains that were taking place and, and really what were the big big things happening in the U.S. Um, and we were putting this into a context of uh, what the world is like after a post-Paris agreement. So after uh, really in the context of, of these agreements on climate change and what are in theories of peak demand. Um, so if, if you're not aware, both Shell and BP um, in the past several months have made comments about uh, peak demand being closer than some might have expected. Uh, so it's got a lot of comments um, and frenzies sort of taking place within Europe um, and elsewhere on the, these ideas of peak demand, which are very important for um, long-term uh, crude, pr- crude prices. So at this, uh, at this presentation, we, we talked a lot about what was happening in the U.S., but we also learned a lot from our peers of what was happening elsewhere and sort of what were the projections for, uh, for supply of, of U.S. tight oil. And I can say that the, the Russian figures for supplies of tight oil were vastly different from uh, what OPEC figures were. And if anything, OPEC was quite low, not just for U.S. tight oil supplies, but for uh, global tight oil supplies. Now, past uh, beyond Riyadh, we also uh, had gave a presentation here in Denver, um, very counter to this, here in Denver with the, the Doug Hart Energy Conference, uh, the Bakken Niagara Conference. Um, and I was specifically focusing on uh, sort of follow on and update to our, our Oxford paper that we did in November. Um, so this was to focus on what was happening in the DJ Basin here in Colorado, um, in the Powder River Basin in Wyoming, and in the Bakken as well, uh, but we started out by really talking about the well productivity gains in the Permian Basin so that folks in the room could really get an understanding of, of where we were seeing a lot of these productivity gains, why people were talking about it, why it's such a big deal, um, and then moving on to the presentation. And I can tell you as we were updating the data, a lot of the stuff that we had put into the paper, um, the, the wells just really continued to impress. So we we're seeing more productivity gains take place. Um, in the DJ Basin um, here in Colorado, as well um, as the Bakken. So they're not quite as robust, obviously, as what we're seeing in the Permian Basin, but they are taking place. So we are seeing some some IP increases in the DJ um, and just increased activity as well. So there's some promise there with some of the wells that, that Noble has brought online and a couple others as well. And in the Permian Basin, I mean, we're really continuing to see some, some very, very impressive standouts in the Wolf Camp. I think uh, EOG is obviously notable there in if you're just looking at the New Mexico side of the Permian Basin, you can see that EOG has a, some really, really impressive wells um, in the Wolf Camp. And if you look at their just their average decline curves, uh, they're well over 1,000 barrels per day, which is very impressive. So given all this, 
Um, what does this, you know, what does this really mean for oil prices? Um, and what's been happening with oil prices? And I can tell you that prior to Sierra Week and all the comments that came out of Sierra Week, um, I was pretty confident that uh, the Saudis were going to come to the table um, in May and June and basically say, "Hey, we're we're ready for uh, t- to coalesce another deal to basically continue these cuts," um, and that they would manage to get Iran and Iraq on board enough to make it work, um, and that that despite whatever Russia was doing, that it was sort of going to be um, it, it was sort of going to be carried forward. Uh, now the problem was that during Sierra Week there were lots of comments made. So uh, there were comments made um, from the Russians, there were comments made from the Saudis, and um, they contradicted each other. So I think one day um, the Saudis were talking about uh, the brilliancy of the IPO and how great it was going to be and how many trillions of dollars it was going to bring in for the Saudi Aramco IPO. And then uh, the next day it was about uh, much more negative comments on on the oil market and how uh, Saudi Arabia was basically not going to be holding the bag at the end of this. Um, Iraq's minister uh, has since sort of, or since after that insisted um, that the OPEC deal was really based on exports, which it really isn't. So that created some um, uncertainty as well and and got people confused. And then Saudi Arabia, beyond some of the comments they had been making from from different folks, they added a a very new term um, that came out, and that was that their February um, production figures were higher than January production figures. So in January, they cut their production figures and it really helped the market. So they were below 10 million barrels per day. Um, in February, they were above 10 million barrels per day and this really spooked the market because this was happening amidst of all these comments. So that's when oil prices took the, another, you know, like lower. So we, you know, they went to 47 and 48 and they were hanging at in that, that low uh, or the high 40s range. And then Saudi Arabia showed these numbers, and then basically they had to come back and clarify them, and they called them, and quote, supplies to the market. So they were essentially saying what they supplied to the market was still within the context of the OPEC agreement, uh, the, the, the cut, um, but they were actually uh, supplying their own country and their refineries, so they were increasing their, um, their supplies to their country, but the, their cut was actually the same. This created some, um, some worries because they Folks are concerned that the compliance with an OPEC um, is sort of faltering. Iraq also added to um, some additional confusion by saying that um, they're essentially going to agree to this, uh, they're going to continue with these cuts, but that they could reach output, um, they could push their output significantly higher in 2017, uh, but those wouldn't be sold onto the market, which was a little confusing. Now, since then, some of that stuff has been reeled back a bit. It looks like Iran, um, who has really struggled to sort of get past that, you know, 3.7 million barrel per day uh, production mark, um, is basically agreed to, to continue the cuts of 3.8 million barrels per day. So that's positive. Now, there's some question marks surrounding Nigeria and Libya because they are outside of the, the agreement. Um, for a number of reasons, and you know, after the agreement, production bumped up a little bit in both both countries. But since then, there's been some issues, and and basically, the longer oil prices are this low, the more issues I think that uh, especially Nigeria is going to continue to have. And then another part of this really um, threw everyone for a loop. I think is that is the Saudi Aramco IPO. So one of the reasons I was much more confident about the market um, prices, sort of at least staying in the in the low 50s, and maybe be maybe moving up a little bit higher in May and June if an OPEC agreement was extended was because Saudi Aramco is working to um, do the initial public offering of their company. Um, And this is very important for the country, for revenues for the country. 
and for the you know the platform of their their 2030 strategy or 2030 vision of diversifying the economy and and, and increasing um, economic growth. Now, the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies, which we are affiliated with, and I'm a, I'm a research associate, uh, they recently put out a paper w- with regards to the Saudi Aramco IPO, and it's very good. I encourage you guys to take a look. And it addresses a lot of these sort of issues and questions around um, Saudi Arabia or Saudi Aramco not owning the reserves and, and what's going to happen there. Um, I think it's a critical point, just to sum up, that this IPO is, is obviously going to be extremely meaningful for the country um, and is very important for their for their reserves, um, for their cash reserves, uh, for their economic balance. Um, and it's also going to be important for oil prices because they're going to want oil prices to be higher than $50 a barrel before they IPO. Um, so that's just a critical point to be thinking about about when we're talking about oil prices and the IPO um, and, and OPEC cuts and agreements. So another element to this Saudi Aramco initial public offering is the valuation. Now, the um, Deputy Crown Prince had mentioned at Zero Week that he uh, saw the valuation around $2 trillion. Now, this valuation isn't just the, um, the 5% that's actually being offered. That's for the entire company. And mainstream analysts really see this figure closer to $400 billion. Now, the government has actually to cut taxes to help uh, both the valuation of the, of the IPO as well as future profitability. Of, so they've actually cut the tax rate from 85% to 50%. However, this is, uh, puts the government in a bit of a pickle because they will have to fill that revenue gap. Um, and there's also a, a, an interesting layer here because the whole point of, of the IPO in itself is to raise revenues um, and help diversify the economy, hopefully take those revenues and, and put them uh, other places. This is part of the, the 2030 strategy or the Vision 2030 plan. Needless to say, one of the reasons why there's um, worry and confusion on the, these OPEC agreements is because OPEC was certainly trying to impact stock draws um, around the world and obviously specifically in the U.S. And um, they mentioned this you know, this wanting to impact stock draws when they did their first, um, if you read the, the OPEC agreements on their website. Now, in the U.S., obviously, if you've seen Cushing stockpiles um, or stocks, that has not taken place. So um, Cushing stocks have, have uh, supplies, stocks in Cushing um, have actually gone, in Cushing, Oklahoma, have actually gone up. And this has had, this is also weighed on, on West Texas Intermediate crude prices, and you can see that's that's been helping that keep that spread open between WTI and Brent. So Cushing is is up, and this has got uh, Cushing stocks are up, and this has got OPEC relatively nervous because these didn't draw down. And part of this is because we are seeing um, we have continued to see resilience with the the shale producers. Um, and every time you read a comment about OPEC, you you read more comments about U.S. shale resiliency, um, the rise in the rig count. Um, and increasingly so, the rise in uh, efficiency gains and, and well productivity increases. And a lot of folks are just really trying to wrap their heads around uh, what all is happening. And the reality is, as we pointed out in our, in our recent presentation that we gave at the Doug conference, and uh, we've talked about extensively, is that the productivity gains are real. The rig count is, is rising extremely quickly. Uh, we're looking at 46 rigs um, drilling right now or active right now in the Bakken, which is a healthy uptake. So it's very healthy. We have over 350 in 
in uh, the, just the Permian Basin alone. Um, we're seeing healthy activity gains here in the DJ Basin in Colorado. We have a handful of rigs uh, drilling in, in the Powder River Basin in Wyoming. So things are things, things are certainly picking up on the rig side. And that, that does weigh on crude oil prices because folks are worried that this, these supplies are going to come onto the market. And the other side of this is that um, whilst these, we've had some worries um, in the U.S. of, of I would say not necessarily worries, but I think Wall Street and private equity is sort of, as I mentioned before, they've really fallen out of love uh, with uh, North Dakota uh, and with the Bakken. Um, I think this is this is short-sighted, uh, but you know the Permian is is taking a lot of focus right now because everything's just so busy there. So recently, though, in, in many conference calls um, in earnings, the companies have reported major uh, Bakken operators have reported that they're increasing their capital expenditures for North Dakota this, for the Bakken this year, uh, and they'll be ramping up activity pretty significantly. And you can see that in companies like Marathon and Hess. Uh, continental whiting and marathon has the largest chunk of those of those rigs running right now in the Bakken. huge capital expenditure plans for this year so we are seeing activity bump up uh, clearly with a with a recount of 46 taking place in the Bakken, um and that's that's big uh what's also part of that as you know is dakota access the the Army Corps of Engineers easement was essentially was granted in February. They have moved forward with building this, continuing to finish the build out of this pipeline within North Dakota. Prior to the protests, this pipeline was essentially built. So they're just finishing the the North Dakota portion of this, um, and they're already. I, I'm hearing that they're already starting line fill on that actually right now. So line fill is basically when you're you're filling up the volumes of crude, you're basically pushing it down the line. So we're sort of going to lose, we're going to pull some volumes um, out of North Dakota that we're not going to see see back until we see the pipeline uh, continually flowing. Now that pipeline is, um, the stated capacity is 470,000 barrels per day. There's been a little bit of a question mark surrounding um, how quickly they could ramp up this this capacity. Um, they could ramp that up pretty quickly by adding pumping stations. They would probably, I, I think they're, they're looking to secure additional commitments before they do that. But I think it's pretty, it's fair to say that you could go from 470,000 barrels a day, well over 500,000 barrels a day, pretty easily. Easily, um, with additional pumping capacity and stations. Now, the um, if you read through there uh, a couple big comments on, on Dapple as well as uh, through the energy transfer partners um, earnings call, they talk about this 470,000 barrels a day capacity, and folks are wondering, well, what's the committed volume? And I, we talked about in previous podcasts that. We thought that, you know, had heard and were, were pretty confident the committed volume was, as we were told, was um, close to, about as close to 100% as you can get. For a pipeline, it was it was looking between sort of 90% committed. Now, in one of the questions that a, an analyst asked in the recent conference call um, that was in February, they asked about those the volumes, and they said they were looking to secure another 100,000 barrels a day of commitment. So basically, they had about 100,000 barrels a day open. So essentially, that means that they were you know, for 470,000 barrels a day pipeline, they were committed at 370,000 barrels per day, and they were looking to secure the, the other 100. Now, I'm I'm guessing and speculating that in the midst of the intense political protests and chaos, 
that they probably lost some shipper commitments. I don't know the legalities behind that or exactly what took place, but I would imagine that um, I don't think it's it's a far cry to say that that there was some loosening probably on on some guys that were committed. I don't know what those agreements were, but it did seem like that pipeline was was nearly fully committed prior to the protests. And then we just heard this in sort of a one-off question in their conference call that they're they're looking to secure those hundred thousand barrel day commitments. I don't think that's going to be a problem. I think that um, now that things are up and running, I think that they'll secure those commitments pretty quickly. Um, and also, given that that the rumor tariff um, is around six dollars and possibly a little below, is that's really critical. The leg of that pipeline, so that they're now calling this whole, uh, they're now calling the whole pipeline, which they had the, they call it the EDCOP pipeline um, that goes from Illinois, Patoka, Illinois, down to um, Netherlands, Texas. Um, they're calling that whole pipeline now. The, the Dakota Access was that first leg that goes from North Dakota to Illinois, um, Dakota Access, and now they're calling the whole thing the, the basically the Bakken pipeline. So the whole Bakken pipeline. Um, when it finally gets to the Gulf Coast, is going to have some impacts. Um, and it's certainly something that we're we're looking at closely, um, and I think a lot of other folks are going to be looking at closely, is that this, this pipeline is already seeing line fill, and we're going to start to see um, some pretty sizable volumes come into Netherlands, Texas shortly. Um, and that means that with the rising production coming out, uh, you know, the gains coming out of the Permian Basin, um, the increasing stock bills out of Cushing and the pressure on WTI, that we could see some further pressure not just on West Texas or immediate, but probably on, on light Louisiana sweet crude prices as well. Um, so these are these are short-term things. This could mean that we're going to have some, you know, price bumps in, in the short term for uh for North Dakota and Wyoming, possibly as we draw those barrels down, but we're we're definitely going to see some impacts on the Gulf Coast, and uh, there is more increasing talk about our the exports out of the U.S. abroad, um, and some recent EIA figures show that uh, of the destinations uh, we're ha- we're seeing a larger share go. Um, to the volumes were massive. I think they were still under 500,000 barrels per day being exported. But instead of the bulk of that, I mean, a lot of that is going to Canada, but a, a decent amount was going to other parts of the world, including uh, various countries in Europe, including the United Kingdom. And as that um, increases, that's that's something that's is that takes place um, and increases. We're gonna we're gonna see more. Um, more talk about that, more focus on that, and we're also going to, we're likely to see more of those exports take place as Dakota Access comes online and moves more light sweet crew down into the Gulf. Now, that brings us to another question, um, and that is that, what about Keystone XL? So, Keystone XL, um, when both Ben Montalbano and myself were at the Energy Policy Research Foundation, Inc., we had done uh, a lot of work. Um, I had done a lot of work on Keystone XL. It was actually my first um, big report that I did uh, publicly was on, on Keystone XL. It was before it was controversial. It was really before it was a hot um, pipeline or, or something to be debated. And we talked about in the, in the report, we really talked about what was the capacity of the pipeline, what type of crude was it going to take, and how it matched the refineries in the Gulf Coast. So in 2011 um, and sort of onward, this was um, this pipeline made a lot of sense. Keystone XL was essentially an extension of the original Keystone, and it was going to expand the, 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 the pipeline capacity to uh, potentially over a million barrels per day. Now, since then, as you know, in 2015, the Obama administration officially rejected the um, the permit approval for um, Keystone XL to take place, so for the cross-border pipeline to take place. Um, so since then, 
there wasn't a whole lot happening. And then, but folks did expect the Trump administration would come in um, and maybe restart those talks and approve that pipeline. Now, this is important because a lo- there's a lot of talk about whether or not this pipeline is going to run, uh, you know, at capa- if it's going to be built one and if it's going to run at capacity as it was planned to. Um, I think it's really important that this is a politically driven pipeline. Dakota Access um, had a lot of politics involved when we were talking about the, you know, with the element of the protests, um, but it is absolutely necessary for the for North Dakota to sort of give uh, you know a buoyancy to these producers so that they can continue drilling and see less of a discount uh, than they were seeing before, and it helps uh, North Dakota producers become more competitive. Now, the same can be said for oil sands producers because um, we are seeing a lot of divestment out of the oil sands, and we are still seeing um, you know very sharp discounts from out of the oil sands region um, to getting into the Midwest um, and to the rest of the parts of, of the U.S. Now, Keystone XL, why I say it's politically driven is that there wasn't a whole lot of expectations that Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, would be all in favor of Keystone XL. So the fact that he is on board with um, Keystone XL and getting a pipeline built to the U.S. is really important, and it means that um, he has a um, he has a connection with the Trump administration, and they both want to get this built. And Trump wants to get it built because this is this has been a uh, you know a, a significant issue for the oil and gas industry, um, especially for the Canadian oil sands since um, since it's basically inception and all the controversy that that went through the Obama administration. So it has the political will, and it's very significant that it is coming out of Canada uh, through the, through Trudeau. I I think the other side of that is that. Um, they haven't been able to build another pipeline in Canada. So within Canada, there hasn't been another major pipeline built. There's been a lot of proposals. TransCanada is also proposing Energy East that goes from Alberta to the the East Coast to export crude. And uh, Kinder Morgan's been trying to expand uh, their Trans Mountain pipeline. Um, And as you all know, Enbridge had the the gateway project that they were trying to take to the West Coast. And all of those have really stumbled because of massive uh, um, internal opposition, not just from um, First Nations groups, but also from from other entities and specifically from uh, Quebec. So I think that uh, the political will behind this of getting Trudeau to support Keystone XL is very big. Now, will this pipeline run at capacity? I mean, essentially, this the Keystone XL um, which all that needs to be built right now is that diagonal leg that links back into the main, the main Keystone system. So whilst all the controversy was taking place and the permits were being delayed and then, and then completely canceled or postponed or postponed and then canceled were, um, the southern leg was built. They call that the market leak extension. So Keystone uh, TransCanada built that southern extension and they actually haven't, they've had troubles if you've heard about, you know, running that pipeline at full capacity. So if they built this pipeline, we're likely to see some of those troubles, you know, edge away. But between um, Enbridge's Seaway pipelines and this Keystone's uh, market leak pipeline, we've seen increasing volumes of oil sands crude actually make it to the Gulf Coast. And prior to um, basically the the talk of Keystone XL and and follow on the stuff that Enbridge did, we weren't seeing hardly any volumes of, of heavy Canadian oil sands crude make it to Pad 3 or to the Gulf Coast, which is really the refineries that are really well matched to take that heavy uh, sour crude. So this, um, should this pipeline be built, um, which I think it will, it's it's looking like this is a, it's not going to, if you read through the, the TransCanada's conference call, this is certainly a, an element of, of interest for most folks. Um, this looks like the pipeline's not going to really, 
get starting to be built till probably 2018. And then um, we're probably not looking at real crude flows until 2020. So that's a ways out there. Um, and I think that is problematic for the whether or not this, this deal actually, you know, whether or not this pipeline gets built and it runs um, because those dates are so far out there. Um, so there's some uncertainty there. But putting that aside, let's say it gets built um, will it run at full capacity? Probably not. It's not going to add another 500,000 barrels a day. I mean, the capacity might be there, but um, I would expect they might trim this a little bit. 500,000 barrels a day is a lot of crude oil to, to move down to the Gulf Coast. And the fact is that um, with all those delays, Enbridge really did take a good chunk of the market share from that. Um, so they, as I was mentioning, they are moving a, a decent amount of crude into the Gulf Coast. So that's not going to be, uh, you know, at the forefront of this of, of 500,000 barrels per day. So we're going to see less than that, um, but it will mean even if we're moving a couple hundred thousand barrels a day. So say Keystone XL is running 250,000 barrels a day um, and it's taking it from Canada to the, the Gulf Coast, that means that that's an extra pipeline, an extra option for Canadian oil sands producers, and that certainly helps uh, the discounts that they're seeing um, at the wellhead up there. This concludes today's podcast. I want to thank you all for listening. Uh, I look forward to speaking with you again in the very near future. I encourage you to share this podcast with your, your friends and colleagues, and we welcome you to, to reach out to us on our website at petronerds.com through the Contact Us page. Uh, thank you very much, and have a wonderful day.